My name is Shandy Chernow, and you're listening to the Shandyland podcast. Today, I have Kimberly Yates, who is the founder of Latitude Food Allergy Care. She's a mom, and she's the co-chair of FAIR's Board of National Ambassadors. Kim, thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited to talk to you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So tell me your food allergy story. I mean, all the way back to the beginning. I know you've got three daughters, one of whom has food allergies, and that's kind of what brought you into this great wide world of food allergy care that we all live in. Yes, absolutely. Um, Well, like you said, I'm the mom of three girls, um, Tessa, Reese, and Alyssa. Um, My oldest is Tessa, and who is now 19. I can't believe it. Um, (laughs) And when she was born, she, um, it's interesting, before she was born, um, we knew that she, um, there was a potential that she could have food allergies because we had, um, we had food allergies in the family. And um, so I was already had this heightened awareness um, from a family situation. And I remember asking the allergist, you know, what should I be eating while I'm pregnant? And what should I not be eating while I'm pregnant? And because the family history had nuts, I was told don't eat nuts while you're pregnant. Um, So I avoided all nuts and um, peanuts and tree nuts um, while I was pregnant. Um, And when Tessa was born, she had um, terrible eczema and terrible skin, um, which doesn't sound very nice, but um, (laughs) we knew that something was going on. And, um, you know, we kept going back to the pediatrician and at six months old, um, we were saying, what's wrong with her skin? You know, it was red, it was splotchy, her, you know, her head and, you know, the pediatrician said, you know, I think it's cradle cap. And I was like, I don't think they have cradle cap at six months old. So, you know, we were trying and I said, you know, could it be food allergies? And the pediatrician at the time, 19 years ago said, food allergies are so rare. <laughs> it's probably <laughs> not food allergies. <laughs> it's like kind of a mess. Um, and, and I said, um, you know, and they were thinking, oh, it's seborrhea, or not seborrhea, um, it was reflux. And, you know, take more, more drugs, more drugs. And I remember on, you know, when she was, she was born in December and it was Mother's Day. So, you know, mm-hmm. she's six months old and I was pumping her full of, I think it was Zantec at the time. I don't know what it was. And she just sped it up. And I thought, this is not what's going on. This is moms. No, I call it mom dar. Exactly. It's just like this just as dads. <laughs> and so I, you know, I, I made an appointment with our allergist who is, you know, our my angel, our angel. She's um incredible. And we had her tested at six months old. And a lot of pediatricians might say, don't get tested at six months old because the immune system's changing so quickly and you might find something out. But it was really important information that we needed to know at that time. And she came back allergic to everything, everything that I was eating even the things I wasn't eating. (laughs) She was allergic to dairy. She was allergic to wheat, eggs, peanuts, tree nuts, um, shellfish, seafood, airborne, you know, environmental allergies. Um, And as soon as we found that out, I took it all out of my diet and her skin cleared up and she all of a sudden had perfect baby skin. So, um, but, but even at that point, when we found out she was allergic to all of these things, you don't actually understand how severe they can be. You yeah. don't understand. Even at the time, there wasn't even a baby EpiPen. We were given a syringe with epinephrine. Oh, Lord. You <laughs> so had to draw like, it yourself? 
Huh? I'm sorry. You had to draw it yourself? No, no, no. I, it was oh, you mean like literally up, a syringe? Literally a syringe, but it was drawn up. So, and um, so we carried that around. Um, and I remember her first trip to the hospital after that was she was at a birthday party and, you know, she was nine months old and just crawling. And even then we felt like she was still in our control, but she starts crawling and we didn't know what that meant. And a kid spilled a bag of goldfish crackers in front of her, picked it up, popped it in her mouth. And, um, you know, we rushed to the ER um, and she was fine. She did okay, but she definitely reacted. Um, so that was kind of our first trip. And, you know, just, you know, we it's, it's interesting hearing your story. You kind of knew ahead of time, thanks to the eczema and the skin reactions. So many parents I talked to had no idea until like the first really anaphylactic reaction. So maybe you were a little bit better prepared than your average first timer, which is great. You would think so, but it's still, you don't, you would think so, <laughs> but you still don't realize the the things that can cause the reactions. Well, that's for, how, that's for how, thinking how, sure. Yeah. How, yeah. How small it can be, how slight it mm-hmm. can be, you know, and you just don't realize that until you get into that moment. And you would think, I mean, I guess you're right. I mean, probably in hindsight, I should have been a heck of a lot smarter with all of the reactions that I should have. I didn't mean it like that. (laughs) No, but I'm just telling you, honestly, it's like, you feel like hindsight's always 2020, right? But it feels like I should have been, that's exactly what it is. And that's exactly how bad it can get. But even in the moment, the reaction can start very, you know, just a slight mm-hmm. reaction and it escalates and it escalates faster than you can react. And that's my least favorite part. When I think that maybe I've accidentally ingested something, there's this time period of like, I don't quite feel right, but is it all in my head? And am I like, am I really looking for something that's not there? And you're never kind of fully sure until it escalates to a particular point, you know? Absolutely. And by the way, the anticipation itself can mm-hmm. cause a psychosomatic reaction mm-hmm. like that in itself. And that's real too, right? In its own way. It's a different type of reaction, but it's also real. Um, so I think, you know, luckily Tessa, you know, at that point we realized, you know, you got to cook everything. You got to do everything at home. You can't trust anybody else. Um, and, and, and of course, the impact that that had on the other families, right? The other families feel tremendous guilt. And what happened there? Yeah. The the mom of that child is still a very dear friend of mine. And she still remembers that day, you know, and I guess the silver lining in that is that it was a lesson that now she, you know, everybody knows how careful they have to be around all kids with food allergies. Um, you know, so it's, we look for the lessons in these, in these moments. Um, and you know, when she was 20 months old, um, we, uh, was one of her worst reactions. Um, we knew she was allergic to milk. Um, we were at a, a family member's house and she was walking at the time and luckily she could talk. Um, and she had cousins that were still drinking milk, um, in the house. Again, there was no intention. There was no, no. you know, um, and she reached up and she grabbed the glasses of milk and they spilled on her. Um, she um, was, her immune system was compromised. She was on antibiotics that night too. Um, there was, it could have been a perfect storm. Um, and within a half an hour or 15 minutes, she's saying, my stomach hurts, my stomach hurts. So of course, the first thing we do at that time was give Benadryl. And she kept throwing up the Benadryl and she couldn't keep the Benadryl in. Um, 
So um, at that point, I also had a two month old. <laughs> so um, my mom was there and I said, mom, I think we need to go to the ER. And because we couldn't, you know, she kept, she kept throwing up. She couldn't keep anything in. Okay. She's allergic. You should call 911. It's still, you know, we don't know how bad it's going to get her. Yeah. Is it epi worthy? Is it, you know, what's going to go on here? So um, we hopped in the car. I put my two month old in her car seat. I held Tessa in my arms. We were driving to Stanford hospital. Um, I remember being um, in the inside lane, the turn lane to get to the ER and we got stuck at a red light. I called 911, um, 911. I said, I'm holding my daughter. I think she's having, I know she's having an allergic reaction. She had milk spill on her hands. Um, she's very allergic to milk. Um, and they on 911 says, I said, should I give her the EpiPen? The fact that you're on the phone with 911 is probably a yes. I hope they said yes. They said, we can't instruct you to give the EpiPen. I'm sorry, what? 19 years ago, we can't instruct you to give the EpiPen. We don't know if that's what she needs. So I have feelings about that. Mm-hmm. Strong feelings. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we get to the ER, we get in. By the time she gets in, her oxygen saturation rate was 60 and dropping. For people that don't understand that, typically they'll intubate at that age, at that point. Yeah. I mean, if you get COVID and you get under what, 90, you're supposed to go to the hospital. Yeah. They won't let a kid leave the hospital if it's under 95, like, or, you know, they try to get it to hundred, you know, with asthma. So I'm sure it's probably different at every hospital, but that's what I did, you know, in my experience, mm-hmm. so 60 and dropping, they rush her in, we get her in. It's just this comedy of errors. It's doctors running around, um, you know, doing math on the sheets <laughs> for what, you know, because they're trying to figure out what dose of epinephrine to give her. And it was a time at which, um, you know, I think it, you know, a, finally a nurse comes in and says, guys, she has a death grip on the EpiPen. Use the Epi. <laughs> and then they look at me and they say, um, okay, do it. And I was like, I'm, I'm surrounded by nurses and doctors and you want me to do it. Because when you haven't done it, and I tell this story to a lot of people, because once you do it once, that's the best thing. Because yep. once you do it once, you realize it's not that big of a deal. And we all play this game in our minds. Is it epi worthy? Should we give the epi? Should we not give the epi? Is it going to get it worse? Is it bad enough? You know, so we all play this in our minds. It was epi worthy. But yeah. at that time, I didn't know what a 60 OSAT meant. I didn't know how bad it could get, you know, I didn't know, you know, there were people out there and say milk spilled on your hands and she almost died. You know, there's doctors, you know, that have challenged it. And I said, look, I am a mom with an allergic child. I know what she's allergic to. I know milk spilled on her hands that night. I have to protect to that level from that point on. Was it probably, would, would that happen every single time milk spilled on her hands? Would it happen to every child that has a milk allergy? Probably not. But all I know is that night, it was a perfect storm, whether it was her immune system compromised, she was on antibiotics and milk spilled on her hands. All I know is that's my base. That's my baseline. And we have to protect her from that level from then on out. Well, and on top of that, when you take her to the people or you talk to the people who are supposed to protect her, they didn't do the right things. They didn't know. So no. And and I'm when I'm holding my do. daughter, when you're holding your daughter, it's easy for someone to say, there's no way that's possible. <laughs> But I held my daughter who would have died that night in my arms. <laughs> and 
There's no question about that. If there was not medical intervention, yes, the EpiPen would have saved her. Absolutely. And it did. Um, but it's not that black and white of, of our understanding. So it's, I tell people all the time, use it, mm-hmm. use it all the time. So many people have said, you know, on this podcast and in other places, you know, if you're thinking, is it epi worthy? It's epi worthy, you know, uh, you know, not a doctor, but uh, repeating the words of many a doctor. <laughs> but I will say it's, what people don't always realize is that you see pictures of, they'll call it a peanut, peanut reaction, right? And you'll see kids with their face blown up. Yeah, the hitch reaction. And, you know, I spoke to a mom the next day and, you know, doctor said, oh, I'm going to connect you with this mom that's been through this. It was the worst conversation I've ever had. Nobody wants to feel judged in that moment, right? And this mom said, I can't believe you didn't use the EpiPen. And I said, tell me what your child's reaction looked like. And she said, oh, well, her face blew up. And I said, let me tell you what Tessa's reaction looked like nothing on the outside. All I could tell was that, you know, nobody had told me or that it could be completely internal. Mm-hmm. It could be, you know, the way they explain it is like a snake wrapping around your throat or a snake wrapping around your lungs. I didn't know. I didn't see yeah. anything. Yes, well, she up. Mine looks totally different than that. I've had, I've had edema in my lip twice. But other than that, it's always been, I, I described it for years to my doctors as being drunk because what was happening was my blood pressure was bottoming out, but who has the vocabulary for that? Uh, not a 20 month old. <laughs> well, not a 28 year old. Not right? a 28 year old either. Exactly. I'm trying to tell them what's happening. They're exactly. not hearing my words, right? Exactly. I and didn't way, drink and I couldn't walk. <laughs> I mean, and 20 month old, they don't have the, le- they don't have the, no. language. they say my belly hurts. Well, how many, I mean, you have two children. How many times have they thrown up in their lives? <laughs> you know, I didn't know that I yeah. should have been thinking the milk spilled in her hands. I knew everything else that went in her of mouth. Of course, there's no judgment for that. I mean, the, the judgment is on the medical community for not educating parents and not knowing the things, right? Sorry, medical community, but I'm not wrong. Well, and I think right? sometimes they don't even know, right? Of course. I promise you. Tessa spoke at the FDA and an allergist there said, that's impossible. That's a long shot. And I'm telling you, can you tell me with a hundred, a thousand percent certainty, you know, and now we're doing the milk patch. So something happens in the skin. (laughs) I mean, I know it's much more scientific than that. I'm just, but I don't want to get into the science of it, but um, it's in the realm of possibility. And something happened that night that, I learned that I needed to protect her to that level and full stop. Yeah. So, um, so having her, let's see, next, what year is it? So several years later, what, seven, eight years later, you get her enrolled in a clinical trial for OIT. Sort of. Sort of. So six, six, so six years later, so from two to age six, we got super complacent. We got really lucky. We were every single thing that went in her mouth, we put it in her mouth. And um, there was a day that I picked her up from school and I gave her a piece of rye toast. Didn't know she was allergic to rye. Nobody tests for rye. I knew she was allergic to wheat. Not that nobody the tests, tests are particularly it. helpful anyway, but. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But, um, and 15 minutes after I gave her that piece of rye toast, she says, mom, my, um, my throat feels funny. We run to the allergist, we end up at the ER. Um, then there was another reaction and um, we um, 
you know, her younger sisters, we had made a decision in our house that everything was going to be safe in our house. I know some people believe that you need to teach kids to live in the real world. I believe that kids, no judgment, but my belief is kids are in the real world 99.9% of the time. Um, let's give her a safety net. Let's give her one place where she can relax. And oh, by the way, we can relax <laughs> and know that she's safe. So when her sisters were born, um, you know, I had three kids in three and a half years. So when Tessa was three and a half, I had my third child um, and everything was safe. You know, nobody drank milk. Mm-hmm. Um, we had no, we had no bread in our house. We had no nuts. Um, everything was safe. And I felt like that was the right thing to do for our family and um, others, no judgment and others that choose differently. But I really felt like that was our safe place and um, a place where we could come and relax. Um, sort of, (laughs) if you can ever relax, but it it was, we knew our home was safe. Um, And when her, uh, when Reese, who was five, um, went to kindergarten, it it sort of felt like this was, you know, it was Tessa's disability. Um, I couldn't make Reese live like this. Like she, she should be able to participate Mm -hmm. um, in birthday parties. And, you know, I, I, if, if, if Tessa were, if we're East and we're in a wheelchair, I wouldn't ask Tessa to sit in a wheelchair as well. I mean, I, I, I sort of likened it to that. And um, so the last day of her, the last day of kindergarten, Reese asked, you know, she wanted to take a treat into school and she asked for sprinkled bagels. (laughs) which means she didn't know donut. what a donut was and she didn't know what a bagel was. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, so she got to take bagels. Um, um, but we kept our house completely safe. But at the same time, they wanted to explore different things. And, you know, there was a restaurant that I would take one of um, one of my daughters. We used to go and get spring rolls and Tessa wanted to go once. I didn't take Tessa to those restaurants and make her watch. I would just do it if I was by myself. Um, and Tessa said, I really want to go there. And they were spring rolls. I, everything's fresh in a spring roll, right? It's rice paper, mm-hmm. it's fresh veggies. Um, I went in there five times. I read the ingredients. I talked to everybody. I said, take out the onions because they're so sauteed. And maybe they were sauteed in something that was not safe. Um, and finally I said, okay, I think we can do this. And we went in on a day and, um, 15 minutes after she had the spring roll, she kind of grabbed her throat, which is what she would do. And she said, mom, I'm having a hard time breathing. Flipped around, went to the allergist um, because we had a back way. We had a back line that I could call, went into our allergist um, and it was really scary. And what we came to find was that on that particular day, the restaurant didn't have the typical rice noodles. They used some noodles, which are rice and wheat. And it was, you know, we played Russian roulette. And um, so it was very scary. It was scary for her allergist, like allergist, you know, 30 year allergists don't get rattled. That Everyone was rattled. So called 911, ended up in the ER again. And at that point I said, enough, I can't take this anymore. Like this is just, this is not normal. And we need another, we, we need a solution. Um, so I, um, called, I said, um, I called FAI at the time. This was before, um, fan and, um, mm-hmm. sorry, I called fan at the time. And they said, you know, you have to go to this one hospital. I'm not sure if I should mention hospital names, but, um, I, I went, um, to a hospital in New York. This is where the gurus were, um, and took her at six. And kind of the answer was, there's nothing we can do. Um, she's 
you know, she's too allergic to fit into any of the clinical trials that we have. And um, you just need to continue to avoid. And it was a tough experience all around. It felt very clinical. It felt very academic. It felt very scary. Um, it, it, for us, you know, traveling across the country with a six-year-old, I didn't know New York at all. I didn't know anyone in New York. Um, again, wonderful doctors doing wonderful things, but it wasn't helpful for us. And um, so I came home and I was, um, I, I, ran, I was doing some other work at the Packard Foundation. And someone there said to me, and you think about those people in your life that, you know, in one comment changed your, the trajectory and changed your world. And this woman, um, her name was Sarah, and she was wonderful. And she said, Kim, have you ever heard of Kari Nadeau? And she was um, very, relatively new at Stanford. And I said, no. And she said, she's speaking at Grand Rounds on Friday. And Grand Rounds um, at Stanford, they do, you know, every Friday they address the medical community and it's open to the public. And I went and I was one of, you know, I, I was me and all the doctors. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I was walking in with a pediatrician that was telling me how he had a, a baby that was, he thinks was allergic and his allergist told him not to test until he was two. And I said, why? Tessa would have died multiple times had I not, had I not been prepared or if I didn't know. Um, and I thought, what's the one question I can ask here that, you know, for the room to know. And the one question I was like, that would make me, you know, make me look, you know, that I, I looked a little, you know, that I looked a little smart, you know, I'm here with all these doctors, you know, I said, and I raised my hand and I said, you know, at what age can you test children? And she said, at, at, at birth or at one month, you can test babies and it's safe and it's important. And it doesn't mean you test and don't ever test again because their immune system does change. Well, but and the tests are not necessarily correct. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But as a guide. But as a guide. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I heard her speak and gosh, she just sounded like this angel. And I thought this is the woman that's gonna help me and help, help my daughter and help our family. And I approached her afterwards and I said, um, you know, thank you for that. I love that you were, you know, Stanford was just starting in milk and just starting in peanut. And I said, but it was gonna be three years for each one of those tests is gonna be 60. And we're not talking about all of her allergens. And I said, what can you do to help kids like Tessa? And she said, I don't know, but I promise you I'll figure it out. And I said, okay, what do you need from me? And she said, I need resources. And I sort of laugh now because I didn't know anything about clinical trials at the time. And I was like, resources, Stanford's got plenty of food and water. What else could they need? You know, people. She, said, she said, I need money. And um, so anyway, she went to work on the people, uh, she went to work on the science side and I went to work on the people side. And, you know, with this, you know, with Tessa's story in mind, she wrote this multi-allergen um, desensitization clinical trial. Um, so um, there were two arms of that. There was, um, um, with Zoller and with Al Zoller. So um, like I said, she went to work on the um, science side. I went to work on the people side, building community, bringing people in and around and supporting Kari and raising the money. And we raised the money. And um, I wish I had time to mention all the amazing other women and families that got involved at that time. I remember the first people that I said, just met this doctor, let's do this, you know, and, and, and let's, you know, let's get her out. And I remember having, you know, setting her up to speak for the first time. And within the first, you know, within one week, we set it up on Eventbrite. In the first week, we had a hundred people. Two weeks, we had 200 people signed up 
just to learn about food allergies because people were not getting any information. Yeah. Um, and that's how it kind of started. And we just, we built a community council around Stanford. Um, we raised the money for that first clinical trial and Tessa entered in with, you know, 35 other really brave children who, um, who were incredible. And um, we um, were followed by um, a New York Times writer, a spectacular human being, uh, Melanie Thernstrom, um, who became a very dear friend and like family as she followed us through this journey. And um, she really wanted to write this story. And um, she wrote the story in 2012 and it ended up on the cover of the New York Times Magazine um, in uh, March of 2013. And I mention it because not in a, in a self-promoting way in any way, but it was a really important story because it was a message of hope for people living with food allergies. There weren't many before that, and there haven't been many since um, of personal stories of, of how, how life-altering oral immunotherapy can be and how it can work. And it sort of put us in this position of People were reaching out to me over Facebook. People, you know, people that read the name and heard the name or didn't know me and just trying to find me on Facebook and just trying to say, how can I be part of this? How can I get my child in? And um, we were really lucky that we um, were able to have this opportunity and it worked famously well for Tessa. And Tessa was really determined. Um, and, you know, it just worked for her. And, you know, she did it, it took a lot of courage. And I will say on the first day when we, you know, you understand what oral immunotherapy is, you're going mm -hmm. in and you're eating the foods that almost killed you. Yep. And um, when we were walking in on the first day, she looked up at me and even, it's funny now, I mean, we nobody, it, it was so new that I didn't really completely comprehend what we were going in to do. I knew, I, I sort of, I mean, I understood it. Um, but when we were walking in on the first day, Tessa looked up at me and she said, mom, if I die, this is your fault. Yikes. And I think I might've been like, all right, let's get back in the car. We're going home. <laughs> Literally. It was like, okay, but she was nine and it wasn't, it was not a snarky nine-year-old. It wasn't a precocious nine-year-old. It was a nine-year-old that was incredibly scared and yeah. nervous. And we were asking her to put food in her mouth that she knows almost killed her. Yeah. And, um, she, uh, so sort of in that moment, I kind of vowed to myself, I didn't have anyone to call because no one else had started yet. So, um, I said two things, one, I will never let somebody go through this alone. I will make sure that I'm there for somebody to call. And two, if this works, we will make sure we will have to keep going until everyone has access to it because no eight-year-old or nine-year-old should be this afraid of a car's table water cracker. <laughs> like the most benign yeah. food and or a 44 year old yeah, whatever oh yeah. right exactly exactly at the in the in the moment it was a no, no nine-year-old should be this afraid yep. no human being no human being that be afraid of something so innocuous yeah um yeah so then that all of these experiences led you to found latitude food allergy care tell yeah. me what you guys do yeah. So when I made those vows and Tessa went through and things were very successful, I stuck around at Stanford for eight or nine years and um, did everything. I was a volunteer at first. I did everything from fundraising to um, partnered with Kari and speaking to families where Kari, um, Dr. Nadeau would speak from the doctor's perspective 
And I would say, and it works. <laughs> I would speak from the patient perspective and help people understand how life altering it is. Um, so Kari and I would go and, you know, we, we did a lot of um, speaking in New York. We had a lot of families coming to us from New York um, and from Chicago and from LA, from all around the country. And Kari was incredibly collaborative. I learned my, you know, what, you know, how important it is to be collaborative from Kari. Um, so I stayed there. I, I was a clinical liaison for the clinical team so that we could improve our outcomes so that the clinical team could understand what it's like to go through the clinical trials. Um, you know, I would sit in clinical meetings, you know, when they said, oh, this patient epied over the weekend. And I could say, I'll tell you why they epied over the weekend so that they could really understand the experience. Um, I was a patient advocate. I helped patients understand what they were going to be going through. I, you know, in all this time watching the behaviors of families and the needs of families, not just mine, but hundreds of families that came through the clinical trials um, would counsel patients, would counsel parents, you know, plenty of times where I would, I would have to help, you know, I would take the patient, the parents out of the room because sometimes we make it much harder for the kids because we're <laughs> so anxious, you know. Um, we would watch families congregate in the hallways of the hospital, desperate for information, desperate for connection, desperate for community. Um, and, you know, it was frustrating that, you know, we were set up for, you know, this at the Sean Parker Center, we were set up for clinical research, not clinical care, not ongoing clinical care. Of course, we gave phenomenal care while people were in the clinical trials, but when you're in a clinical trial, then you need to go back to your provider. Um, so we were, you know, we were, it was frustrating you know, clinical trials are expensive, right? And we could only treat so many people in clinical trials um, and only so many people fit, you know, fit in, fit the criteria for a specific clinical trial. Right. Um, but we had had enough evidence and enough clinical trial data that said that oral immunotherapy can be successful and can be very, very safe. And um, it didn't make sense to us that people had to be traveling, you know, I'm talking to you about traveling from Arizona. It doesn't make sense yeah. to me that people need to be traveling across the country. But at the same time, I understand why, why it's, why for a traditional allergist, it's not that easy to pick this up and just do it. Um, so um, I have a very, you know, a very dear friend in New York that was coming out to California for treatments. And he said, Kim, you know, healthcare is moving more towards specialized care. We have diabetes centers, we have dialysis centers, we have cancer centers, and we know that they're improving the outcomes of these patients. You know, why can't we do this for food allergy? Why don't we create yeah. a food allergy center, a network of food allergy centers that are totally focused on food allergies that allows the allergist the time to, to focus just on the food allergies and really treat, you know, care and diagnose care and treat for those patients. And I said, oh my gosh, that's my dream. You know, it's Kari and I's dream to be able to make this accessible for everybody. I said, but I'm not a business person. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm very open about this, right? Because I, you know, I hope other people will realize, you know, um, I said, I'm not a business person. And he said, Kim, we can find you a business person. We can't find someone with your passion and your drive and your experience. Um, um, we can't find someone with that. So we can find you a business partner to partner with, but would you be willing to do this? And I said, this, I would love to do this. So um, I came home from New York and um, I, I met a, a, a spectacular human being that, um, who has started 30 healthcare services companies. And um, you know, I got introduced to him. Um, he was all, another parent at our school. And he said, Kim, you know, he heard what I was doing. You know, what, what, what um, Jonathan and I had done is we went and met with some 
incredible families in New York that have been incredibly um, supportive of food allergy and incredibly philanthropic at Stanford and said, you know, we'd like, we're, we're considering doing this so that we can help many more people. And, um, you know, if we, if we built this, would you invest in it? And um, would you support this? Hands down, absolutely. Because just very, you know, by nature, they wanted, they had the ability to have their child treated in a clinical trial at Stanford and they wanted to give back and they wanted to make this accessible to many more people. So I'm, I'm just so grateful to these families. And again, I don't, I don't want to forget anybody, so I won't name anyone, but they know who they are, these incredible families that were 100% of our first round of investors um, right. were families with food allergies. So now if someone wants to come and, uh, you know, start their journey with latitude, how do they get in touch with you? Um, the usual ways, I mean, they can, they, you know, they can go to our website at latitudefoodallergycare.com. Um, they can reach out to there. They can find me, you know, anybody's willing to help. I mean, latitude was started by patients for patients. Um, and um, sorry, I'm probably going into too much detail. So tell me when, um, um, so, so, so Latitude, we opened our first um, clinic in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area in Redwood City. And um, we had intended to um, open our second clinic in New York because we have a very large um, community in New York and very supportive community. And, um, and um, we were in New York the last week of February of 2020. And um, we had raised the money to open New York. We had a business license. We had a doctor. And then two weeks later, the world shut down. Especially in New York. Yeah, no doubt. And so we stopped, obviously, and focused, you know, on Bay Area. Um, and then we had some amazing opportunities pop up. And we, um, had, we pivoted and we grew in the Bay Area. So we went from one to five clinics in the Bay Area um, and have been doing incredibly well. Um, We've seen well over 1,700 patients. Um, nice. And it's um, everything about Latitude was built from the patient perspective. And you'll hear patients say when they walk in that door, I feel like I'm among my people. <laughs> and they just, they don't have to explain anything. You know, we understand, we understand the anxiety. Um, we've, we have communal space, which was great before COVID and we'll get back to it, but communal space where families can hang out and spend time together and support each other. Um, and we have phenomenal outcomes and we right. have our patients. Um, so now we're ready to expand and we're, we're planning to open in New York next year. We already have patients that come to us from New York and um, New York, Chicago, Arizona. We had someone come from Poland. Um, you know, and I think it's important for people to understand that Latitude wants to collaborate with, with allergists. We came out very specifically focused on food allergies so that we could be an extension to, to, to traditional allergists. Every allergist out there wants to do the best for their patients and they want of to course. help their patients. And, yeah. um, you know, right now we're embedded, some of our clinics are embedded in allergy offices. We're not here to take patients away. We're here to be able to, like I said, ex extend the offering that they have for their patients. And we collaborate with patients, with doctors in New York and collaborate with doctors all over the country so that we can help their patients. And, um, we intend to continue to do that until our network can, can make it across the country and, and hopefully across the world. Um, but we exist um, to give food allergy patients the opportunity, um, you know, we exist to give options 
And, you know, we will always, we will offer FDA approved drugs. We will offer, you know, anything that has been proven in clinical trials. Um, we're very evidence-based and um, we, we will, um, you know, I always say that if you had a brain tumor, you would go to a doctor and you would say, tell me all of my options from doing nothing to doing the most aggressive treatment and everything in between. And, and you and I, and I as the patient get to decide what my, what, what my path forward is going to be. Um, and we believe in that wholeheartedly at Latitude that as more drugs become approved, we will bring them on at Latitude. And um, we will offer our patients, you know, the breadth of, the breadth of op options that are available to them. I think that's so great. So I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. I'm sure that, you know, other food allergy parents and parents of kids who don't have food allergies, you know, can really understand and, and, and hear your story and, and what led you to really want to help more patients. So thank you for that. Now it's time for my favorite little game of two truths and a lie. So uh, something that you didn't tell us, but three facts about yourself, one of which is not true and don't tell us what the answer is. Okay. Um, I am one of five kids. I played tennis in college and I speak French fluently. Perfect. I love it. Kim, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I hope that people come and connect with Latitude. I mean, what a great way to be able to help as many patients as possible. And thank you for not only caring for your own child in the best way possible to protect her, but you know, making that a mission to protect as many humans as, as you possibly can. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Listeners, thanks for sticking around as always. And we'll talk to you soon.